Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden, your podcast guide on the long journey through Swedish history. He's Chris and she's Orsa. It's time for another episode rolling onwards with the inter-Scandinavian story we've seen for the past couple of episodes. Political storm clouds were rolling in when we ended the last episode as Duke Albert of Mecklenburg and his son Albert, helpful naming, were planning to jump feet first into the swirling whirlpool of Magnus's reign in Sweden. Speaking of the confusion created when both father and son have the same name, when they're both involved in the same event and we need to differentiate between the two of them we'll call the older Albert of Mecklenburg Duke of Mecklenburg and the other just Albert. Good idea. Sometimes it's more self-evident who is who because of their different roles but sometimes yeah they are both involved and it's good to keep in mind who's who. But before we start talking about father and son it's time to talk about a Swedish phrase of the week. And this time the phrase is she sent the May, she's Carlson. Literally it translates to don't kiss me, kiss Carlson. Carlson obviously being a Swedish surname. Unless that's a literal command, this doesn't seem to make much sense. So uh, what does it really mean? In a very specific circumstance, it could be used literally, but as a phrase, it is used to mean don't praise or credit me, give praise to this other person. Like, say, for example, that your friend compliments you on work you've done to your garden, but you know that your input was relatively minor and it was your sister that came over and helped you and that made the garden turn out as nice as it did. Then you could say to your friend, well, thank you, but don't kiss me kiss Carlson, implying that your sister is the Carlson, i.e. the person that is due the praise for the thing you're being praised for. But you don't change the Carlson to the person, so if they don't know it's your sister, you'll then have to say, it was my sister. Yes, correct. Cool. It's no doubt a useful phrase if you want to make sure the credit is given where credit is due and don't want to take everything for yourself. Now, we also looked into the history and etymology of this phrase, as we always do, or at least try to do. And in this case, there's a very specific story about how the phrase came to be. And it's a bit of a long one, but it derives from a murder case all the way back in 1913. This was when the pharmacist Johan Erik Halberson was attacked in his home in Hammerby, north of Stockholm, and stabbed to death with a knife. His maid, Ebba, who came to his aid, was also severely wounded. Initially, the local police suspected and then went on to prosecute two travelling Italian salesmen who'd been in the area that day. That's quite a journey from 1913, Italians Mm -hmm. coming to Stockholm to sell. Do we know what they were selling? No. No? Okay, let's say kebabs. Now, these travelling Italian kebab salesmen were innocent, which their defence attorney Axel Carlson was able to prove in court. The case got quite a lot of publicity at the time, and the newspapers recorded that in the courtroom, when the judge delivered the not-guilty verdict, the mother of one of the accused got so happy she wanted to kiss the judge. The judge, acknowledging that it was thanks to the work of the defence attorney that the two men were freed, calmly said, don't kiss me, kiss Carlson, i.e. the defence attorney. The papers reported on this phrase and from then on it went into popular use. Yeah, and that's a nice little bit of backstory there for the Swedish phrase this week. Uh, 
Also, I really doubt that these Italian salesmen were selling kebab, it being 1913 and them being from Italy, but fair enough. Olive oil, maybe? Yeah, that's more likely. What kind of export was popular in, in 1913 Italy? Yeah, good good question. I know that when my grandmother was a kid, they didn't use olive oil for cooking. They used it for like ear problems and it was sold in the pharmacies. Wow. Yeah, so maybe that's what they were selling. We don't know. Anyway, it's time to... Well, that could be... Maybe they weren't innocent then because he was a pharmacist they killed. So maybe he didn't want to buy their ear olive oil. Ooh, conspiracy. This is like a going into a true crime cold case uncovered podcast or something. This is not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go even further back than 1913 and see what happens uh, in our medieval late... 14th century Sweden. We ended last time with Bill Jonsson Grip, the exiled and former member of King Magnus's council, arriving in Mecklenburg with some other Swedish nobles in tow. They had been kicked out of Sweden for trying to rebel against the king, but Magnus got the upper hand with support from his son, King Håkon, in Norway and removed them. But now they had agreed an alliance with Duke Albert of Mecklenburg. In return for removing Magnus from the throne and allowing them to return to Sweden, they would accept Duke Albert's son and namesake, Albert, as King of Sweden. This really is selling out the country in many ways, although, of course, younger Albert does have a bit of Swedish noble blood in him, as his mother is Magnus's sister, making him the nephew of the Swedish king. So not just a bit, he's actually got 50% Swedish royal blood. That is true. He's still part of the overall royal club. He's not just some random trader from Västergötland trying to get on the throne. Now, in this plot... Young Albert was entirely dependent on other people. He isn't very independent in this story. Along with dependency on his dad, Albert was actually dependent on German towns who had allied with his father and soon uh, as well the Hansa. Without their support, he would have no chance of grabbing power in Sweden. Some of the Hansa were also now willing to get involved and make sacrifices because they didn't want the Scandinavian monarchies to unite. Yeah, we've seen this every time someone like the Hansa or foreign people get involved. It's right at the point where all three Scandinavian kingdoms are going to unite or one of them is clearly more powerful than the other one. So that's kind of, again, this time what's, what's going on. Yeah, because it is looking more likely that the Scandinavian monarchies would unite now that Valdemar's son had just died and Valdemar's daughter Margarete was married to King Håkon of Norway. A united Scandinavia would have enough power to try and stand together against the Hansa and their trade interest and take economic control of the Baltic. So throughout the past few years, Duke Albert had always made sure he stayed friends with the Hansa, or at least most of them, and now it was time to team up for good. Of course, a lot of Swedish cities had a large Hansa or German community, and it seems like the people of Stockholm and Kalmar, for example, two of the bigger cities at the time, were largely sympathetic to these Swedish rebels now they had teamed up with the Hansa. 
This is quite a change of opinion after Christopher's death down in Denmark. It was only the previous year that the Hansa launched that giant naval attack whilst allied with Magnus, and now they're turning their back on him. Yeah, this is really representative of the period. Nothing lasts for very long. Magnus and Sweden tried to negotiate with the Hansa once they realised what was going on, but it was to no avail. On the 10th of November 1363, both Albot and the various German knights allied to Mecklenburg set sail for Sweden. The force was about 1,600 men strong and included Swedish noblemen keen to return home. The fleet headed straight for Stockholm. According to German sources, they arrived on the 29th of November, and the next day, the Stockholm mayor and council declared allegiance to them. They approved the younger Albert as their master and welcomed him into the city. To make matters worse for Magnus, it's around this time that his wife, Queen Blanche, dies, which is very sad. Unfortunately, we don't know exactly when or how, just that she's now out of the picture. Yeah, that's sad times indeed for the king. And this very quick decision by Stockholm's council to accept Albert as their ruler is a good indication that his father, Duke of Mecklenburg, had been working on the city's German population in advance, getting them ready for such a move and buttering them up and letting them know his views on the situation. It seems like Magnus and Hawkorn were either out west at this point or began basing themselves in the west of the country once Albert enters Stockholm. They knew that this is probably going to come to blows and their main power base is out towards the west. This new regime in Stockholm takes a few months to solidify their grip on these Hansa-dominated towns and cities in Sweden before pressing forward with the more political side of their game when it comes to Sweden as a whole. In February 1364, Albert gathered the Swedes to elect a new king at Murastenar, with presumably only one option on the ballot paper. Me. Here, some very hastily negotiations or discussions took place, and unsurprisingly, Magnus and Håkon were declared unworthy of the Swedish throne, and instead the people of Sweden chose to declare Albert of Mecklenburg to be King of Sweden. Yes, and so this is it. 1364, Magnus is finally officially deposed, but he's clearly not happy about it. He's been king for as long as he can remember, for 44 and a half years, and he won't take this lying down. This has clearly been a stitch-up by these uh, rebellious Swedish nobles and the Hansa and the Mecklenburg, so he's not going to just accept this. In March, Mecklenburg and their Holstein allies send joyous proclamations of victory back to their homelands. But that was perhaps a bit premature. They should have known by now that Magnus doesn't give up easily. Whilst perhaps not the most successful monarch we've seen when it comes to battles and strategy and his overall performance, he has been extremely successful in surviving and remaining in the game and wiggling his way out of trouble. And this is still the case now. Troops loyal to Magnus and son Håkon are based around the west of the country, in Småland and over in Norway. They fight back, and as a result, Magnus remains in control of the west of the country. The counties of Västergötland, Värmland and Dalsland are some of the major territories he's able to keep hold of. 
Annabeth is not happy about their moves, saying in a letter that they were running around like refugees inside and outside of the land. Not a very kind thing to say. Indeed. Now these are now the lines that have been drawn on the map for the real conflict set to come. The new king starts to fill the Swedish administration with German bailiffs, something that's against the rule of the Landslag, but Albert, being German himself, clearly preferred to have Germans in the administration. But he is also forced to concede a lot to the nobility, who are making the most out of the situation and presumably willing to accept these German officials whilst knowing that they were able to return to their positions of power and accept other economic and political concessions from the king. New King Albert probably didn't realise how hopeless his task was when, at age of 25, he accepted this Swedish crown. The kingdom sort of split in half, with Magnus still claiming the throne out west, and the nobility, led by Bouillons and Grieb, only teamed up with him because they were sick of Magnus. Like any group of Swedish nobles throughout history so far, they just wanted a king that would follow their lead. They didn't particularly believe in Albert himself. And for most of these early months, Albert was ruler only in name. In reality, it was first his father and the council that ruled for him. As one historian puts it, Albert's dad was a scrupulous adherent of real politique, whose grandiose dreams of Mecklenburg rule in the Nordics was something he's always been pushing. Duke Albert hadn't played this long game for so long to just abandon Sweden to his young son and let him free to do what he wants. He really was the power behind the throne at this point and sharing some of that with the Swedish nobles. Now, Valdemar down in Denmark has been sitting quietly observing developments in Sweden He's in a bit of an awkward situation. He has a son-in-law in each of the warring factions, as the other sister, Ingeboy, uh, is married to Henrik of Mecklenburg, plus his brother-in-law is the king of Sweden. Yeah, so his daughter Margareta is married to King Hawkon, he's married to Magnus's sister, and his other daughter is married to a Mecklenburg. So yeah, he's really in the middle of this web, isn't he? Well, to be fair though, Valdemar, this is what happens when you keep intermarrying and pawning your daughters off everywhere. So yeah, Valdemar has alliances with Hawkon and Magnus, but he is worried about being overpowered by the Mecklenburgs, who in turn are ever more connected with the Hansa. In the end, he decides to remain neutral. Instead, he goes on a long diplomatic journey through Europe in 1363 and 1364 and sees the Pope in Avignon. That's very convenient. Sorry, can't help. I'm going to see the Pope. And it's a bit like how uh, some certain British politicians, when they've uh, promised to vote a certain way in the Parliament, suddenly find themselves on a trip abroad or something when that vote takes place. He's like, oh, sorry, I couldn't say what I did what I wanted to say because, uh, sorry, I was so busy somewhere else. Exactly. It's like when you know something big is happening at work and you said an out of office just to not being involved in it. So... Valdemar's out of office said, sorry, not replying to emails, seeing the Pope. 
back in two years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the spring and summer of 1364 sees a bit of tentative negotiation between the two sides, but it essentially boils down to more disagreement. The Mecklenburg sources claim that Magnus agreed to let Albert have Sweden as long as he could keep Westergötland for the rest of his life. The Mecklenburg Accords say that Magnus swore on this at the altar of the Gröbröra church in Jönköping, but Magnus was probably forced to agree to this rather than happy to do so. Historians seem to think it was more of a ceasefire than an agreement. Of course, this sort of flaky agreement was never going to last, and it didn't. The war is back on in the autumn of 1364. It starts with a siege of Elbo Castle, which Albert personally attends over in Finland. After a while, the king takes the castle and heads back to Sweden. And it's in early 1365 when Håkon and Magnus finally launch a full-scale offensive into Sweden. In February, they send a proclamation to the Archbishop in Uppsala, demanding that he turns against the foreign masters who are now running Sweden, but nothing comes of this appeal. And so in March, they advance with troops from their western Swedish provinces towards Stockholm, but are intercepted by Albert's troops at Garta in Vesmanland. Unfortunately, not much is known about this rather decisive and pivotal battle. We know it took place in March, but that's almost everything. Well, that is everything, apart from the fact that the invading army loses and Magnus is captured and taken away to prison in Stockholm Castle. Yeah, that's a pretty disastrous outcome for uh, Magnus and Håkon, isn't it? It is indeed. But luckily for him, Håkon escapes back west and avoids capture or death and pledges to rule the western Swedish provinces from Norway and to one day rescue his father. Sounds like the revenge sort of line after the prologue in a gangster movie or something. I will avenge my father. (laughs) It really does. Many Swedish nobles, if they had been biding their time to decide who to support, now start properly supporting Albert and Mecklenburg rule of Sweden. Many notable bishops also pledge their support to the new regime. This doesn't mean that everyone is on board, though. As in 1366, King Albert has to put down a revolt in Dalarna. His fear of rebellion against his rule seemed to extend to Finland as well, where he soon sets out uh, to build new castles in Satakuna and Karelia, plus greatly enlarging Elbo Castle. The talk of castles in Finland makes you wonder a little bit why Novgorod haven't tried to sneak in while all this chaos was going on in Sweden. They seem to have missed a trick there because they always seem to be lurking on in the background. Yeah. But it's been a while for, since we've last heard from them. Yeah, true. You're wondering what they're up to. Yeah, maybe they're... Well, they, they had a lot of random streets catching fire and stuff last mm. time we, we checked in on them. Yeah. So maybe they're just dealing with themselves. But... 
Either way, castle building is on the agenda. And it's during this building process that we see again the whole issue of negotiation around taxes, especially in Finland. And this is one of these things that we've popped into every now and then. And I find really fascinating about how the king and uh, the people had to negotiate what level of taxes they had to pay. And this is something we see again. So here's another fascinating quote from Kimmel Katayaya's great article against tithes and taxes for king and province that we've talked about before. And so the quote goes, The costs were placed on the peasantry, and peasants were obviously also used in the building work itself. At the same time, a new war tax was introduced. The result was protest. In Satakunta, the protest was directed against the new castles. In 1367, men from Satakunta were sent to King Albert to complain about the new castle. It should be noted that King Albert saw the protests of the peasants as so strong that he decided not to irritate them any further. He ordered the demolition of the newly built small castle at Kokameki and its removal to a more suitable site on crown land. Katayala goes on. It's known that Albert wrote to his bailiffs in Finland and urged them to negotiate with the peasants of Usima and Karelia to get them to speedily pay their taxes for Vipuri Castle. In the same letter, he confirmed the agreements the bailiffs had entered into with other Finnish provinces. From this, we see clearly that the king could not impose taxes on the peasants, but had to, at least formally, negotiate with the local peasant community. It's also suggested from tax rolls and other records that the bailiff of this Vipuri castle was killed in a tax revolt by peasants the following year, so the Finnish people aren't exactly too thrilled with Albert's direction. And this shows you that King Albert is so weak, or perhaps the protesters so angry and powerful, that he has to demolish a newly built castle and move it somewhere else onto crown land, and another castle has its bailiff killed by a mob. So this is really amazing, this is such a Another example of why people don't really have much time for King Albert, both back then and now in the history books. He hasn't learnt this tax negotiation skill that all Swedish kings have had to have up to this point. Absolutely. Now, it's time for more ceasefires and potentially more changes in the alliances. This time, it is Valdemar who is trying to take advantage of the weakened situation of his son-in-law, Helkon. He tries to negotiate with Duke Albert of Mecklenburg. Notice it's Duke Albert, not King Albert. He meets the Duke in Denmark, and the result was an idea to partition Sweden. In return for his support for the Mecklenburgs, Valdemar was to get large areas in southwestern Sweden, Veren, Finveden, and southwestern Västergötland, and the new fortress of Elfsborg at the mouth of the Göta River, all recognized as provinces of the Danish kingdom. And King Albert also had to accept that Gotland was Danish. Now, those are big, big asks of any Swedish king, and when his dad comes calling, telling him what he needs to accept, for once, King Albert says no to his father. This was simply too much for his reputation to accept. 
Indeed, Harold Gustafsson believes that it's probably just another example of medieval Scandinavian kings trying to buy time by getting involved in long, drawn-out negotiations, knowing that they'd never really come into effect. And this seems relatively likely, as we've seen this tactic time and time again throughout the last hundred years or so. It especially seems likely when we just go one year further into 1368, when the Hansa and Mecklenburg, along with Sweden of course, as King Albert does what he's told, at least most of the time, and they attack Valdemar in Skåne. And this time, Norway and King Helkon are on Valdemar's side. I mean, we're sorry this is really getting ridiculous now, the shifting alliances, but we just have to roll with it. The Hansa fleet raids along the Norwegian coast, saying that they are doing this because of injustices faced by the Hansa in Norwegian territory. This war by the Hansa seems to have been rather effective. Mecklenburg and the Hansa took back almost all of Skåne relatively quickly, and by 1368, Duke Albert was ruling those areas and gave trade privileges to several Hansa cities. Just like the new castles in Finland and many other areas they control in Sweden, Duke Albert and King Albert quickly put German officials in charge, something that the Swedish people, although not necessarily the top elite like Björnson Grip, are starting to get annoyed about. Yeah, they're, they're really seeing this German transgression into the upper echelons of Swedish society. This is when Valdemar himself travelled to Germany to try and rally support against Albert and Mecklenburg, because of course uh, Mecklenburg is just one area of the bigger German pie, and there's loads of inter-German alliances and rivalries too, so Valdemar's now looking south to try and tap into this network to try and get some friends. Some of these minor rulers from out Germany attacked Mecklenburg holdings around the Baltic Sea, but had no real major effect on the outcome of this war up in Scandinavia. Scandinavia, and Valdemar had to accept that, for the time being, he was on the back foot. And this was especially so by the time we reached 1369, as the mighty Helsingborg Castle, which we've seen uh, play host to many battles in the past, falls to the Hansa. And this seems to have been a quite a big moment, as an entire wave of peace treaties are signed in quick succession after this defeat. King Håkon pulls Norway out of the war with the Hansa, signing a peace treaty with them. The Hansa then quickly sign a peace treaty with Valdemar, who probably realised he couldn't face the whole Hanseatic League without help from Norway, and he wasn't getting any real help from the anti-Mecklenburg Germans down south. As part of this, the Treaty of Stralsund was signed between Denmark and the Hansa and Sweden. The Hansa gets Scanner, Falstabu, Malmö and Helsingborg. So these are vital parts of Duke Albert's lands in Skorna, and they get them for a period of 15 years. They also get trade privileges, control of the Urusung Strait and a bunch of other minor benefits. All this diplomatic work means that there is only one war left going on, and that is Håkon and Norway against Albert and Sweden. After all, Magnus is still in prison in Stockholm, and Håkon wants to free his father. He isn't going to stop that part of the conflict, that's for sure. He really is a loyal son. And speaking of sons, Håkon and Margarete welcome their son, Olof, to the world in December of 1370, which was certainly a reason to celebrate. Now, keep 
young Olof in mind because he is the son of the Norwegian king, the grandson of the Danish king, and the grandson of the Swedish king. So uh, this is going to be an important person in the story to come. Yes, and of course, Valdemar's own son, Christopher, is dead. So this Olaf is going to be a prime target for uh, succession in in Denmark. Yeah, we'll stick a little pin in him because he's just a baby for now. Like a a piñata. No, not a piñata. Tail on the donkey. Stick a pin in him. Yeah, just going to stick a little pin in him there in his crib for now and uh, see what happens when he gets a bit older. Back in Sweden, the people were soon rising up against their German rulers. The diary from Vardstena Abbey puts it uh, flower in flowery language like this. Vultures came down from the mountaintops because Germans tyrannized the country for many years. Yeah, so a lot of the ordinary Swedes and the minor nobles are fed up that their career prospects and their country has been ruined by all these German officials being scattered around the country by the Mecklenburgs. A sort of guerrilla war was fought against the Mecklenburgs to try and reinstate Magnus on the throne, of of course backed by Norway. But the main parts of the Swedish nobility don't want Magnus back, as they gained a lot more by having Albert on the throne. He was weak, and they thought that before long they could extract even more concessions from him. Håkon also realises that internal discontent with Mecklenburg of Sweden is really hitting boiling point. Maybe, just maybe, if he could make one surgical strike now, he might be able to tip the balance of power in the region, despite the knowledge that alliances and positions of strength are changing almost every other month. This, this could be the opportunity. Yeah, Helkon kickstarts his campaign against Sweden, and the year of 1371 is a year of great change. Harold Gustafsson says that this attack comes at the right moment. Discontent with Albert was now spread from the common people to the elite and the Swedish council. Some sources even mention that there was a local revolt against his rule in Svealand, but nothing is known about it, if it indeed even happened. What we do know for certain happened is that the council, which, remember, is mainly made up of noblemen and bishops, forces Albert to swear a new oath of loyalty, a so-called Kunga Fasekran, a king's oath to them. And he did this on the 9th of August, 1371, in Grobradra Abbey. This is really a clear sign that they don't trust him. They insist on making sure that his power is regulated and that it is clearly stated in a very official way like this. The king essentially gives up all serious power to the council led by Bill Jonsson Grip. Bill Jonsson had almost complete control over the council and had done for at least a few years. Two years previously, in 1369, he became Officialis Generalis. This is a funny title. Officialis Generalis Magistratus Impossibilatus. <laughs> so it sounds like when Eddie Izzard tries to yeah. speak Latin in his sketches. Uh, it means chief magistrate or official with control of the management of the royal court and the royal bailiffs. So that's a very powerful position indeed. 
Now, the obvious fact that Albert gives this assurance or oath is a sign that he's not strong enough to resist the council and do what he wanted. Because, of course, there's no reason to believe that Albert was any different from any other medieval king in that he wanted absolute power for himself, or at least for his father. He wasn't like an early front-runner of democracy and wanted to share power with the council in a lovely sharing kind of way and have a parliament or anything like that. He, he obviously wanted power, and so being forced to sign these new oaths and giving away power is only a negative for him. He just wasn't strong enough to stop this. He'd been put on the throne by these Swedish noblemen with a bit of help from his dad, and so if they wanted to take the power from him, there wasn't too much he could do about it. He himself had quite weak ties back to Sweden going back in time, albeit having uh, Swedish blood, he hadn't really spent any time in Sweden growing up, and he certainly didn't have his own power base. He's German to all extents and purposes. You're right. Albert had been put on the throne by parts of the nobility, essentially because they wanted a power king that they could control and do what they wanted. They were going to make sure he stayed a puppet king for them. In practice, it was now the council that ruled the king. We know that there had been general displeasure with Albert putting these Germans in high positions in Sweden and giving them land and castles, but now he was made to return Stockholm, Orbel and Axvall castles to the council, who put Swedes in these positions instead of Albert's Germans. The members of the council must have been quite pleased with themselves now. They've further limited Albert's power, they've gotten rid of more Germans, and they've put their Swedish people in their place. Of course, and these Swedish people were members of the council and of the elite. They're not just giving them to random people, they're ensuring that they're enriching themselves. And now things arguably are going quite well from their point of view. But just a few days later, the situation changes once more, because of course it should. This is all happening whilst Hawkon is marching eastwards towards Stockholm under his offensive, and uh, soon reality comes home and bites them. Uh, under threat from this Norwegian advance, on the 14th of August 1371, a peace treaty is finally signed between Albert and his side, the you know, Swedish council, and Magnus and Hawkon. Finally! Now that has been a long time coming. Indeed, but sadly the original document isn't preserved, so we're not sure what the exact wording of it was, but we do know the main thing is that Magnus is released from prison. Yay! Freedom! After six long years. Magnus is finally a free man again and able to head west and rejoin his son. But he's of course no longer king, he's had to officially hand over the crown to Albert and resign any claims to the throne. Whilst he might still go on trying to call himself king, in reality Albert is the king whether he likes it or not. But it's not all bad. According to the terms of the peace agreement, Magnus does get to keep the land that is part of the Skara diocese. So that's the counties of Vestergötland, his main home base, Dalsland and Vermland, and he can rule and raise taxes from them. They were his to do with as he saw fit, but on his death, they would revert back to Albert's control. So it's more like a long-term loan rather than an official surrender. He's getting a lot of his stuff that he wanted but when he dies is going to go back to Albert. That's quite a sizable chunk of western Sweden that he gets to keep though. 
Yeah, and it's basically formalising the situation that happened since Albert joined the country because Magnus, through Hawkon, had been running these areas of Sweden anyway, so it's just putting an official stamp of approval on the current status quo, really. It's just that Magnus has been freed from prison. And, of course, because these agreements are never worth the ink they were written with, Magnus still styled himself King of Sweden and Norway in official documents, and... So did his son Helkon, actually, just as they had both done since the early 1360s. You can imagine they never intended to give back these territories if Magnus did in fact die before Helkon. Father and son had definitely not given up claims to all of Sweden either, and still ruled this significant part of the country in the West as if they were rightful kings who had a claim to the rest of the country. So it's not too bad at the end. Basically, this peace agreement stopped an attack on Stockholm in return for Magnus being freed. Everything else was just as before. Despite this blatant disregard by some for some terms of the treaty and the fact that Albert had officially loaned a lot of Sweden to Magnus, historians such as Axel Christiansson see this treaty and the outcome as a win for the two Alberts, as they were still in control of Sweden, which they might have lost uh, in a big battle with Hawkon, even if only nominally and the, the council was gaining more control over them. The situation had looked extremely perilous for them, but now they were safely through the choppy waters, at least for a few minutes. Yes, the council were a bit of a pain, but we all know that the situation can change really fast, and so they're probably hoping that at some point, Bouillonson Group and a lot of the nobles are going to do something stupid and get themselves killed or die in general, and they would be able to take full control of their parts of Sweden back from the council. Absolutely. Now, according to the Visby Chronicle, upon his release, Håkon brings his father with him back to Norway. We should mention that this release didn't come for free, apart from the we won't attack you and kill you. He had to officially hand over the throne, but also his supporters have to pay 1,200 marks of silver in bail for him. This is paid mainly by Norwegian noblemen and a few Swedish who were still loyal to Magnus and Håkon out in the West. So Magnus takes up residence in Norway, but only just. Apparently his ship sank just as it was coming into Bergen and he had to be pulled out of the water. It has certainly been a rough few years for this man. Uh, He's now been a widow for at least the past eight years, but despite this and the fact that he is getting on a bit in years and has lost most of his powers and nearly drowned... Recent Norwegian research have discovered that he was quite active in ruling the areas that he got to keep and in areas that his son controlled as well. For example, there are letters preserved from the autumn of 1371 that Magnus wrote to several areas of Norway that he's still in control of, informing them of some new taxes. He also managed to keep control of Iceland for this entire period. Levying taxes is, of course, a strong claim to power. If you had control over certain areas, you would probably try and tax the people there, regardless of your official title in the eyes of any council of foreign rulers. 
It's worth remembering that even though he'd officially lost it by now, Magnus had had the Swedish crown for a long time. He reigned for 44 years, if you count up to the time that Albert was elected king, longer than anyone before him, and longer than any monarch would, until the current king, Carl Gustav XVI, overtook him just four years ago, in April 2018. So, he was in the job for a long time, and you can imagine there were plenty of nobles and regular folk in his western Swedish province that would still absolutely recognise him and his son as the rightful kings of all of Sweden. Absolutely. But I think that's enough for now. We'll return next time to continue the story now that Magnus and Håkon are sitting in the west of Sweden waiting for another opportunity to take back the rest of Sweden and Albert tries to come to terms with essentially giving away all of his power to the council and Bill Sangip. I can't wait to tell you the next part of the story here. Yeah, it's going to be really fun, and we're going to not wait very long because we're probably going to record that tomorrow <laughs> in real time. So that's going to be great. And also something that's happening right now before we leave is that we've just passed 100,000 downloads. So that's amazing, unbelievable. Wow. Uh, two and a half years to get to this point. Thank you, everyone, who's uh, been one little part of that, and especially, which we post on uh, recently on social media, was Poland. There's been loads and loads of downloads from the last couple of months from Poland. So hello to everybody in Poland. Dzień dobry. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com or via our Facebook and Twitter pages. Just search for a Flatpack History of Sweden. You can also check out new family trees on our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com, or check out our social media pages for these too. Yeah, it definitely helps to uh, get a clearer picture on all these alliances and things if you could look at a bit of a picture of the family tree to see how they're all related to each other. But yeah, it's a uh, goodbye from us. Bye-bye. Hey, door.